From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. Brooke Gladstone is out this week. I'm Bob Garfield. This week at a press conference held with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, the president took the opportunity to set the record straight on his urgent commitment to his major policy goals, like health care. We are getting close to health care. We'll come up in the... Uh early to mid part of next year. Economic growth. I'm going to be surprising some people with an economic development bill later on. And the opioid crisis. Uh, We're going to have a major announcement probably next week on the drug crisis and on the opioid massive problem. When it comes to the opioid epidemic next week, there's been a long time coming since at least his presidential campaign. It's an unbelievable problem that we have all over this country. If I win, I'm going to stop it. You watch what happens. And more recently, since August, when President Trump officially deemed the crisis a national emergency. The opioid crisis is an emergency, and I'm saying officially right now, it is an emergency. It's a national emergency. We're going to spend a lot of time, a lot of effort, and a lot of money on the opioid crisis. Except that no expenditure of time, effort, or money managing this national emergency is evident as the death toll gets ever larger. Experts estimate that last year, 64,000 people died from drug overdoses, more than half from heroin, fentanyl, and prescription painkillers like OxyContin. Meanwhile, the Washington Post and 60 Minutes jointly reported last weekend that the government's ability to crack down on illicit painkiller sales has been seriously compromised, thanks in part to Trump's erstwhile drug czar pick, Pennsylvania Congressman Tom Marino. As the opioid epidemic reaches new heights, a law sponsored by Marino last year made it tougher for the Drug Enforcement Agency to stop millions of narcotic pills from flooding the streets. In the midst of the worst drug epidemic in American history, the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration's ability to keep addictive opioids off U.S. streets was derailed. After that story broke... Marino was out. President Trump has just tweeted moments ago. He says Congressman Tom Marino has informed me he is withdrawing his name from consideration as drug czar. A triumph of journalism? Maybe. But the much, much larger problem still remains. And for that, journalism may have at least a little bit to answer for. Lenny Bernstein is one of the reporters behind the Washington Post 60 Minutes investigation. Lenny, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Let's start with the basics. There are illicit ways to get large quantities of opioids, ways that benefit drug manufacturers and distributors and retailers, even if they are doing nothing actively wrong. How is it done? It's pretty simple, actually. If you are an illicit user of opioids or a dealer, you get a bogus prescription from a cooperating physician, often for cash, and The folks out there who are using these drugs know which pharmacies to go to. And often for cash, you will be given these opioids. All right. So the DEA is obviously on to these rackets and has shut down various pharmacies and distributors over the years that were at a minimum facilitating the black market. And specifically keeping an eye on this activity were a couple of guys named Joe Ranazizi and Lyndon Barber. Here's Ranazizi speaking about drug distribution companies in his interview with 60 Minutes. This is an industry that's out of control. What they want to do is do what they want to do and not worry about what the law is. And if they don't follow the law in drug supply, people die. That's just it. People die. So, Lenny, tell me how, over the past decade, these guys went about their business. First, they warned these companies. They called them all in in 2006, 2007, and they said, look, under the law, you're supposed to contact us if you see unusual patterns, unusual amounts, or unusual frequency of these drugs being ordered by pharmacies, hospices, nursing homes, hospitals, any place that uses them. And after a few more warnings, the DEA started to go after these distributors who declined to follow the law. Which distributors in particular? 
The big three, Amerisource Bergen, McKesson, and Cardinal Health, all three are in the top 25 largest corporations in America, but also a lot of small distributors, some that you would call mom-and-pop distributors. There was one in 2007 that was sending drugs off to internet pharmacies. They put 90 million pills into circulation in the black market. There were only a handful of people who worked for that company. All they did was send out pills. And for some of these companies, the most egregious ones, they went in there with immediate suspension orders and shut them down that day. And that began the tussle between the drug distributors and the DEA. All right. Now, you mentioned under the law. And the law dates to 1970. It says that distributors and pharma companies and retailers are responsible to be vigilant for irregularities that cause an imminent danger to communities. And that turns out to be important language. Because in around 2014, this consortium started lobbying Congress to push through a new law called the Ensuring Patient Access and Effective Drug Enforcement Act, co-sponsored by two Republican members of Congress, Tom Marino and Marsha Blackburn, Marino, Pennsylvania, Blackburn, Tennessee. What did the bill nominally set out to do, and what did it actually achieve? The distributors always felt and claimed that the phrase in the law, imminent danger to the public health, was too vague. How do we know when we see it? Well, the DEA had given them a number of definitions and a lot of regulations, and they also said, common sense, please. If a pharmacy is ordering 20,000 pills in February and 100,000 pills in May, something's going on. Stop the flow of the drugs and alert us and we can look into it. The Ensuring Patient Access Act, the first version brought by Tom Marino, was sold as a way to make this phrase less vague, help the distributors understand their responsibilities, and to prevent the disruption of pills to legitimate users, people who need them for cancer, pain, and end-of-life diseases. Now, the law doesn't do anything like that. There is nothing in the law that ensures patient access. The Marino bill also, because of the language, would have made it virtually a criminal standard before the DEA could move in. That is, the DEA would have had to show intent on behalf of these companies, that they actually intended to do something wrong. That's impossible. And it began to work its way through Congress. And that odyssey in a moment. But I guess it will come as no surprise to anybody that there were hundreds of millions of dollars put into the lobbying effort on the part of this pharma consortium. And also campaign contributions in the millions to, among others, and (laughs) you could knock me over with a feather, Tom Marino and Marsha Blackburn, the sponsors of the bill, both from communities that have been heavily racked by the opioid epidemic. Correct. The distributors and the various companies involved in this and some other associations Together, spend about $102 million lobbying on this and other bills. The way the reports come in, you can't tell exactly what they spent on each bill. And similar companies gave $1.5 million in campaign contributions to the 23 people who co-sponsored this law. You don't give campaign contributions in Washington most of the time if you're not expecting something back. Now, at a moment in history when an epidemic is killing more people than car wrecks in the Vietnam War, you would think that people would be alert for language in the bill that made it harder for the DEA to enforce. The House bill was fought by the DEA and the Justice Department pretty vehemently. They said, this is fixing a problem that doesn't exist. This is going to take away our authority. This is the greatest diminution of the Attorney General's authority in many decades. Joe Ranazzisi, who you mentioned earlier, by holding the drug company's feet to the fire, had greatly antagonized them. He's a man with a temper. He ticked off a number of politicians. Including Congresswoman Marsha Blackburn, one of the co-sponsors, at a hearing 
on what was then just a bill. 16,651 people in 2010 died of opiate overdose, okay, opiate-associated overdose. This is not a game. We're not playing a game. Here. Nobody is saying it is a game, sir. We're just trying to craft some legislation. Let me ask you. Oh, they crafted some legislation, all right. And ultimately, the bill passed, again, unanimously in April of 2016. President Obama signed it without any real public protest. The DEA itself had stopped fighting the good fight. And the media's coverage sounded like this. In other words, not a word about this legislation because all eyes were focused elsewhere on our insane presidential campaign. How did something so destructive happened with so little resistance ultimately and with so little notice from the outside world? Well, that's a terrific question and that's the question that still needs answering as a result of our story. It was not until a couple of months later when Mr. Ranazisi, who is now almost a year out of government, began sounding the alarm that various newspapers started looking at this law. But there was something else that was going on that is in many ways more disturbing than cynical legislation by members of Congress getting money from the pharma lobby. And that is what happened within DEA itself. Earlier, I mentioned Lyndon Barber, who was a DEA lawyer who had been a point man for a lot of the enforcement actions against distributors and retailers – but he left government and went to work for – He became one of the top, if not the top, drug industry lawyers. And he brought with him a knowledge of the DEA's regulatory efforts, their scheme, their thinking. And he knew where it was strong and he knew where it was weak. He had an impact inside the DEA and cases began to slow down. An investigator named Jim Geldof who was trying for two years to bring a case against Miami Lucan for pouring millions and millions and millions of pills into West Virginia. And every time he thought he had enough, the DEA legal office would send him back for more, more experts, more evidence, more interviews, more transcripts. And this was happening not just to Jim Geldof, but to all kinds of investigators and all kinds of investigations. And it is very clear that for reasons of overcaution or belief in what Lyndon was saying, the DEA was slowing cases down. Now, earlier we observed that the attention of the press and the public was entirely dominated by Trump and Trump coverage. Only now is it getting any attention. What have we as an institution done wrong? Well, I was one of the people who was out there not reporting this story. <laughs> I was I was on this beat and didn't have a clue that this law was being debated on Capitol Hill, discussed inside the DEA and the Justice Department. It's not a great thing. Almost exactly a year ago, we did mention this law in part of a very large story about the problems at DEA. None of that broke through the Trump coverage. None of it. Here, we have broken through the Trump barrier. I would have to credit the collaboration with 60 Minutes. It's a very powerful platform. The outrage that this could be passed during an epidemic of that magnitude has finally hit home. Now, there was one immediate effect of your reporting, and that was the effect on the president's nomination for the new drug czar. In the great tradition of Trump appointees being foxes to guard their particular hen houses, he had nominated Tom Marino, the author of the Ensuring Patient Access and Effective Drug Enforcement Act, was going to be the drug czar. And he, well, officially withdrew, but let's just say presumably was disinvited from the nomination. Apart from that, I wonder if anything else is going on, like, for example, a consideration of amending or repealing the law altogether. There is a movement on Capitol Hill to re-examine the bill. Some Democrats have called for repealing it. Remarkably, pharma, the big drug manufacturing lobby, has called for repeal. Others want to amend it. 
Chuck Grassley, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, has said he will hold an oversight hearing to see if the bill really is harming DEA. So there is some movement for repeal, but I would say that it is far from certain that anything will change. Lenny, thank you. My pleasure. Lenny Bernstein covers health and medicine for The Washington Post. Coming up, how narcotics became opioids and addiction became a national epidemic. There was a new drug popping up on the streets called OxyContin, and its producer was promoting this drug as something that was less addicting. This is on the media. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. The investigation by The Washington Post in 60 Minutes has shed light on how the pharmaceutical industry worked to pull the levers of government to protect themselves from prosecution. But their influence doesn't end there, because even the public discourse about chronic pain and treatment has been shaped by companies like Purdue Pharma, the maker of OxyContin, with help from physicians, consultants, and, yes, the media. Barry Meyer is a reporter for the New York Times and author of Painkiller, A Wonder Drug's Trail of Addiction and Death. He says that before the term opioid was coined, painkillers were known strictly as narcotics and were associated with dark alleys and lowlifes. Narcotic painkillers like morphine were used almost exclusively in the 1980s and well into the 1990s for the treatment of cancer and other types of terminal pain. And there was well-founded fears here in the United States that even patients who were dying from cancer were not getting adequate treatments of morphine. Uh, There was the concern that, you know, at the end of their life, these patients would become addicted. And it truly was a significant medical problem. And so the pendulum swung. And you were there when it kind of changed direction back in the early 2000s. How did you come to this story? We got a tip here at the Times that there was a new drug popping up on the streets called OxyContin. And its producer was promoting this drug as something that was less addicting than previous painkillers. But it had become sort of the drug du jour on the streets, and there was a huge street trade going on in it. There were people like you who were looking at abuse, but there were others who kind of bought into this narrative that pain was undertreated, and perhaps they were a little naive in doing so. Can you tell me about the kind of stories that were popping up on this subject, the war on pain? Yeah, there were, there were tons of them in, in virtually every major publication. Forbes had an article called the morphine myth. Playboy did a big interview called, you know, the war against pain doctors or the war on pain patients. You know, on the one hand, I think there's a natural tendency for journalists to seize on, wow, there's a problem. We've been laboring under misconceptions about how it should be treated, and we can now address what's like a pervasive problem in the United States. 
Then there was another class of journalists, many of them with a libertarian bent, who saw, you know, these drugs were safe, they were effective, they were helping people, and their focus was, oh, wow, the DEA is smashing down the doors like the ATF would do with, you know, like gun owners, and standing in the way between doctors who are really just trying to do the right thing by patients and these patients who desperately needed these drugs. The nanny state is forcing you to live in pain. Not even just the nanny state, but the police state was doing it. And this whole narrative was fueled by misinformation being generated by Purdue and other people, you know, medical leaders in the scientific community. I mean, people who were dealing with scientific evidence like they were political advocates. Aha, the experts, the same crowd, cited over and over again the same research studies. Who were they? Dr. Russell Portnoy was unquestionably the most famous, and as it would turn out, most aggressive. The likelihood that the treatment of pain using an opioid drug, which is prescribed by a doctor, will lead to addiction is extremely low. You know, what Dr. Portnoy did, and I believe I was the first person to find this, was to basically take studies that had absolutely no relationship to the long-term use of these drugs and purport that these findings were evidence that these drugs could be used safely with an extremely low addiction rate. He's the one who coined the idea that there was an addiction rate of less than 1%. I just want to focus on this for a moment because it's astonishing to me how slight was the supposed research. The Porter and Jick study that is at the heart of all this wasn't even a study. This was a letter that appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine. 11 lines long. Yeah, and it had nothing to do with the long-term use of opioids. It was people who had been treated with opioids, and, and then they were released from the hospital. It didn't follow those people. It didn't look at their use of these drugs over weeks or months. It had absolutely nothing to do with the arguments that were being made by Russell Portnoy or by other advocates of these drugs. Similarly, there was another study at a headache clinic that was again being held up as supportive of the use of opioids or narcotic painkillers. In fact, it's fairly well known that narcotics are a terrible way to treat migraines and other severe types of headaches because they create what's known as rebound headaches. And then the third study was a very, very small study dealing with burn patients. And again, tiny study, tiny number of patients never following these patients over the long term. I think, you know, underlying that is the fact that the FDA, which is supposed to be sort of the gatekeeper to the approval of these drugs, never required Purdue to do a long-term study to prove the safety and efficacy of these drugs or their ability to addict. They allowed them to basically speculate about that. Meantime, that pendulum, if it had swung too far to one direction and cancer patients and others with chronic breakthrough pain were being deprived of treatment, around the turn of the millennium, Purdue started taking that narrative very much in the opposite direction, seeking to get OxyContin prescribed for damn near everything. Here's an excerpt from a video series they played in doctor's offices called I Got My Life Back. They don't wear out, they go on working, they do not have serious medical side effects. And so these drugs, which I repeat, are our best, strongest pain medications, should be used much more than they are for patients in pain. In 2007, Purdue Pharmaceuticals and three of its executives pleaded guilty to criminal charges based on that campaign. And they were fined $650 million, which sounds like a big number but is really kind of just table stakes in the painkiller market, huh? We did the math at one point. It was like a day's worth of sales or a couple of weeks' worth of, I mean, something de minimis when you looked at the total sales. At some point, a a journalist doing his or her due diligence must realize that the narrative is being driven by a relatively small number of people And nobody, as far as I can tell, until you ever went back to figure out if these were disinterested parties who were honest brokers of legitimate research 
or shills or some hybrid of the two. How much of this epidemic do you think is attributable to the failings of just basic journalism? I do believe that, you know, as journalists, we do have an obligation to do some pretty simple stuff. It took me about three days to do the reporting that made it absolutely crystal clear to me that the studies that were being held up as the holy trinity of the opioid movement had nothing to do with the use of these drugs. There was a gullibility on the part of journalists. There are stories all the time about, you know, cures for this, that, or the other thing that when you prick it with a pin or wait a couple of weeks, they all turn out to be bogus or ill-founded. There was that, but I think there was a much more pernicious side, which were people who really were sort of industry mouthpieces and shills who not only fell for the scientific data, but made it sort of a cause celeb, made doctors who were running pill mills or mistreating patients heroes in this war against pain. And I can tell you that I'm sure while some doctors were improperly prosecuted, it was also abundantly clear that there were a number of doctors who were criminals and who were using their medical license to make money, to trade drugs for sex with their patients, who were acting in the most deplorable ways. You came into this story and have kind of chronicled the trajectory of opioids, but it's a story you've sort of seen before because this wasn't your first beat. There was a period of time when I covered the tobacco industry. Right now, what you're seeing is litigation taking place against opioid makers much in the same way that litigation took place against tobacco companies. The state of West Virginia, for example, suing Purdue. Not only suing Purdue, but suing every other opioid maker as well, because by the mid-2000s, it was not just Purdue that was promoting opioids. It was a range of companies that were making these drugs. And what's sort of fascinating here is that while the tobacco saga took decades of litigation to come to that breaking point, the opioid problem, it's not a long-term health problem. People can become addicted or severely dependent on these drugs within a matter of a few weeks or months. So what we have is this public health crisis unfolded kind of in rapid speed. It's much faster than tobacco, and in many ways, much more complicated. Not only do you have the corporate imperative to sell product, you have a criminal imperative to get these laboratory drugs like fentanyl onto the street. So now, because we'd never dealt with the pharmaceutical end of the problem, when we might have, we're now dealing with criminal enterprises that are selling drugs that are even more deadly than their pharmaceutical cousins. <sighs> Barry, many thanks. My pleasure, Bob. Barry Meyer is reporter for the New York Times and author of Painkiller, A Wonder Drug's Trail of Addiction and Death. As the death toll from the opioid crisis continues to rise, communities have found an unexpected source for understanding its impact, death notices. These modern-day obituaries, published occasionally in community papers but more often online on such sites as Legacy.com, have together chronicled the crisis's individual human toll. Journalist Anna Clark recently wrote about the opioid-related death notices for the Columbia Journalism Review. One thing that I've been noticing is how many of these obituaries are very candid, not only that the cause of death was an overdose, but often giving a lot of details about how long this person struggled. Now, there was a time when obituaries or death notices 
would go to rather great lengths to avoid talking about causes of death or circumstances that would be deemed shameful. These were things that were hushed up. You know, I'm not speaking only of suicide, for example, or HIV AIDS, but back in the day, even cancer. It's so interesting to trace how shame around particular illnesses, which is almost exactly correlated with misunderstanding about particular illnesses, has made families feel like this was something that they needed to hush up, something that they didn't want the neighbors to know, something that when they wrote the last story of this person's life felt like a stain or a distraction. But yeah, even cancer. For a long time, people thought it was something contagious. It affected body parts that were thought to be unseemly. So what changed? The story of how AIDS was told in obituaries was really important. It caused a lot of internal discussions among mainstream newspapers about how important it was to mention the cause of death at all, because it was not just outing the fact that they had AIDS, but often cases outing that they were gay. And both of these things had a lot of stigma around them. And if the family felt uncomfortable with that. A lot of papers weren't sure if that was something that they should do. The folks who were at the forefront of shifting this was gay newspapers, and particularly the Bay Area Register, which for a very long time was publishing obituaries of people who died of AIDS with real persistence and compassion. And in some cases, they were the only notice at all that these people had died. Sometimes they were disowned from their families. There was no mention of their passing anywhere else in the world. In 1998, I believe, when for the first time since the AIDS crisis hit the San Francisco area, no one submitted an obituary of somebody who died of AIDS. It was such a big deal that they published both a news story and an editorial about that that ended up going on the wire, being written about all over the country because it seemed like a metric that perhaps just maybe there was some light at the end of the tunnel with this terrible, terrible crisis. Being candid became kind of a political statement because silence equals death. It was a direct act of defiance against stigmatization, shame, and so on. Right. Early on, I mean, there was literally people working for the White House who described HIV and AIDS as a just punishment for people who were gay or used intravenous drugs. I mean, it was a powerful pushback against that, affirming that there was nothing that these people needed to be ashamed of. And it was simultaneously documenting the human cost of this crisis in a way that nobody else was, in a way that was very, very necessary if we were going to change the attitudes and policy necessary to find solutions. You've written that the accumulation of these candid obituaries influenced the collective memory. How so? They're a way of showing what we as a society value and also what we abhor by both what's included and what's left out. When we tell the story of people's lives, it's inherently selective, taken as a whole, It's a really powerful document of how we change and don't change over time. And I think what's happening now with these opioid obituaries, especially in communities where there is no local reporting, these obituaries carry even more weight in telling the truth about the utter devastation that is playing out right now to the extent of 59,000 people dying a year of this. Your piece in Columbia Journalism Review begins with a passage from the obituary of a young man named Austin Janatsky from Stevensville, Michigan. Could you read a bit of that for me, please? Sure. Um, I'll just start from the beginning. Austin James Janatsky, 24, of Stevensville, died unexpectedly on July 2, 2017, when he lost his courageous battle to addiction. Austin was born May 13, 1993, and grew up in St. Joseph, where he attended Lakeshore Public Schools. He was employed at Walsworth Printing. Austin enjoyed fishing, camping, boating, listening to music, and the Dallas Cowboys. Most of all, he enjoyed spending time with his family, especially his nephew Jonathan and nieces Joan and Paige. Austin had a kind heart with an amazing personality and was able to bring laughter to all those who he met. During the last seven years of Austin's life, he struggled and fought to overcome his substance abuse disorder. Austin was blessed to have the love and support of his family and many caring individuals to stand and fight with him during his battle. 
Austin attended Families Against Narcotics, where he shared his personal battle with opioids in hopes to inform the community on the dangers of drug addiction and to offer support, acceptance, and encouragement to all who have been affected by this terrible disease. I can go on if you'd like. No. Um, those words are having an unsurprising effect on me as I listen to them. What effect do you imagine they have in the larger community and in the larger narrative of opioid abuse? Sure. Um, well, I should first of all make clear that I'm kind of biased here. He's part of my extended family. He's my brother's brother-in-law, and this is where I grew up in this community in southwest Michigan. First of all, it really does humanize and complicate this crisis for people who might still carry a lot of stereotypes about it. I hope it does so to the point where it moves people to reach out for help if they need it, to not feel shame about asking for help for something like this or admitting that they don't know what to do to help a family member who's struggling with addiction. It's also alerting people to resources, you know, families against narcotics, which are mentioned here. Somebody who's reading this might notice that and think, oh, maybe that's a place I can reach out to if I need help. At the same time, it is helping people to see that this kind of crisis isn't just something happening far away. It's not something that's distant. It's not something that only happens to people who, quote unquote, chose it. It doesn't just affect people who grew up in unloving family situation. It's that nice kid works down at the printing shop. Yeah, it's affecting everybody. Nobody is safe until we come up with solutions. Anna, thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Anna Clark is a Detroit-based journalist. She wrote about opioid death notices for the Columbia Journalism Review. Coming up, a journalist documents the forced guardianship of elderly citizens with no recourse for the family and a cottage industry for the guardians. She said, I have a court order. I'm removing you from your home. And if you don't follow my order, we're going to call the police and found themselves in an assisted living facility for the next two years. This is On the Media. On the Media is brought to you by Zbiotics. Tired of wasting a day on the couch because of a few drinks the night before? Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic, invented by scientists to feel like your normal self the morning after drinking. Zbiotics breaks down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com/otm to get 15% off your first order when you use OTM at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com/otm and use the code OTM at checkout for 15% off. On Notes from America, we have conversations with people across the country about how we can truly become the nation that we claim to be. Each week, we talk about race, our politics, education, relationships, usually all of them, because everything's connected. And you, our listeners, are at the center of those conversations. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on Notes from America, wherever you get your podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And so the opioid epidemic continues along, punctuated by investigations and revelations that make noise and bring attention to the forces at play. With every new report, we learn a little more, from the extent of the crisis to the decisions that caused it to the players profiting from it. This is what journalism does, opening up new areas of inquiry that beget new questions and new possibilities for intervention. But how does it begin? What happens when you discover a story that doesn't fall into a well-established narrative, that requires data that hasn't been collected, or histories as yet unwritten? 
One such story arrived this month when The New Yorker published How the Elderly Lose Their Rights by staff writer Rachel Aviv. Rudy and Rennie North are in their mid-70s. They've been living alone. They have a few hours of help each day, but they're fine, and their daughter lives 10 miles away. In 2013, a guardian named April Parks knocked on their door. They let her in, and she said, I have a court order. I'm removing you from your home, and if you don't follow my order, we're going to call the police. So they were feeling vulnerable and disoriented and just alarmed by the situation, and they followed her orders and found themselves in an assisted living facility for the next two years. The Norths were caught in a system that's extremely difficult to navigate, both for those who find themselves ensnared within and for the researchers and journalists like Aviv trying to make sense of it. Guardianship is a system for people who've become incompetent due to disability or age to essentially outsource all their decisions as well as constitutional rights to a third party, uh, whether it is a family member or a professional. The guardian can control where you live, who you associate with, what kind of medical treatments you receive, and what happens to your assets. Now, some senior Americans do require care of a third party. Either they don't have families or their families haven't the wherewithal to assist. Mm-hmm. But the story that you wrote shows that that system, that safety net, has been utterly perverted. It varies widely state by state and even county by county. And then there are many counties where there's just no oversight. The guardians appear frequently in the courtroom and the judges seem to have just gotten into the habit of rubber stamping their petitions. It's just a great area for exploitation. In Clark County, Nevada, there was a history going back almost 30 years of guardians sort of taking control of people's lives and really alienating them from family and making decisions that the wards themselves were desperately trying to undo. Many of the guardians were selling the homes of their wards, often against the wishes of the wards. It is astonishingly easy for third parties not only to be appointed by the courts to take over the affairs of the elderly, but to actually generate the cases. They actually seek out people to eventually find themselves guardians of. Mm -hmm. In some of the counties that I looked at, and particularly in Clark County, it seemed as if these guardians were actively looking for middle-class or upper-middle-class elderly people. So one of the guardians, April Parks, She would essentially advertise with lawyers who worked with the elderly and with rehab facilities. And as she put it, she was trying to, uh, quote, generate client leads. And the idea was that then when a social worker at this rehab facility found a patient who was being a little bit belligerent or maybe wasn't taking his medications or wasn't paying his bills, then rather than the doctor having to communicate with the patient— Um, They communicate with this third-party guardian who then makes all the medical decisions for this patient. So it's almost a way also for doctors to kind of streamline their job by not actually communicating with their patients. And once again, the cases you looked at were those not where the children had abandoned their parents. They were ready, willing, and able to assist their parents. And in fact, in some cases, showed up to the parents' home to find out that they had just vanished into this system of court-appointed elder care. Yeah. The family members would often come into court and make a case for why they should be the guardian or for why their parents should not have a guardian at all. The family members were often disparaged in court records as someone who was just out for their parents' money. As if it would be so horrible for a child to expect that maybe they would get an inheritance. And the guardians appointed by the court who were deemed better caretakers of the seniors in question than the seniors' own families, Mm -hmm. but their training consisted of what? The only requirement was that they not have committed a felony and they have not gone bankrupt in five years. There's no educational requirement. 
Now, you were, as a reporter, kind of lucky because Clark County, which has an ever-growing population of seniors, also does not seal its court records on these cases. So you were both at ground zero and at a place that's unusually well-documented. How did you get onto the story to begin with? You know, I have always been interested in family court in general. Because family court records are so often sealed, my sense is that there's a lot of corruption within family court and there's a lot of arbitrary decisions being made that can't be scrutinized. I was actually intrigued uh, by the Alex Jones custody case. That is this just seemed... the Alex Jones conspiracy theory? Exactly. Infowars Alex Jones? Yes, yes. Um, I had read some of the transcripts and I was struck by the tremendous power that had been given to the guardian ad litem in that case to decide which parent was fit. I began looking into what kind of power is given to these guardians and what happens when a guardian makes a bad decision. What kept coming up was complaints by family members about the guardians for their elderly parents or siblings. These were blog posts and sort of dinky websites devoted to the disappearance of a family member who had now been put into some sort of institution. And the complaints were so similar from so many different people in different parts of the country that I started to think there has to be some truth to this. You quickly discovered that there aren't really advocacy organizations or clearinghouses or certainly government data collected on the dispositions of elderly wards of various jurisdictions. It's a universe that exists kind of undetected. Mm-hmm. I've seen coverage in local papers, but it's almost always focused on the individual county and a couple stories in that county because there's really no way to extrapolate into the larger national picture. All the scholars I spoke to said that there's no studies on this. There's no data. We don't even know how many guardianships there are in the country, let alone how many guardianships sort of go awry in the process. I wanted to know when private guardianship really emerged as a viable career. And there was just nothing. I would ask the experts in the field, and they had extremely different answers. One of the scholars who has studied guardianship, her name is Pamela Teaster, told me that there's so little data that she has been using newspaper accounts to sort of look at the frequency of guardian exploitation and guardian corruption because these anecdotal accounts are really best she can do. There was a local woman, Terry Williams, who had spent a number of years looking into these very matters and, you know, had a pretty good trove of Mm -hmm. documentation. Terry Williams was in court and she overheard a man begging the judge to have visitation with his mother. And she was thinking, you know, in what world does an adult child need to beg a judge to have visitation with his elderly mother? And at that point, she went to the records room of the courthouse and began researching all of the cases of the guardian in question, um, whose name was Jared Schaefer. And she just kept noticing this consistent pattern, which was that the guardian would petition for guardianship through an ex parte order, which provides an exception to the rule that both parties need to be notified of an argument before a judge. So these were secret petitions and secret orders. These people would become wards of the court, and they actually didn't know it until it had already happened. This guy, Jared Schaefer, who is he? He had been both the public administrator and the public guardian since the late 70s. In 2001, he branched off and started his own private guardianship business. But during those many years in public office, he had lobbied and consulted with lawmakers to loosen the oversight required of guardians when they petition the court to take over a person's life. What did he have to say to explain this system and his role in it? Well, the whole time I was writing this article, I was feeling anxious about the fact that I was essentially accusing him of crimes. And I kept thinking about what was going to happen when I sort of listed everything I was saying in the article and he responded to it. 
but he just categorically refused to engage with me in any way. Um, and, and maybe that is a legal strategy, but he just did not respond to any efforts to get in touch with him, and I never heard from him. I mean, not even just a simple no comment, nothing. What you described in your piece has the look of not just an abuse system, but a racket. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Have there been any criminal consequences for the principals in these nightmares that you're retelling? April Parks, who's a newer guardian and a younger guardian who is essentially following the model of Jared Schaefer, she was indicted and she's going to go to trial this spring. But the indictment is focused on the fact that, you know, she would say she was with someone for two hours and charge them for two hours of her time, but actually was still only with them for 15 minutes. So it's relatively superficial as far as the charges go. Jared Schaefer, whose conduct traces back two decades, has been untouched at this point. We discussed that one of the problems for you as a reporter is that there was no pre-existing data set on the incidence of these problems and no scholarship and so on. Do you have any reason to think that from this point forward that the attention will now grow? People are becoming more aware of elder abuse as this discrete phenomenon, just as child abuse sort of came to be a viable construct that there are now, you know, all sorts of laws regulating. And there are laws regulating elder abuse, but I don't think there's been as much attention to the ways in which it's unique from other forms of abuse. One of the scholars that I spoke with who does study this said that she was told studying guardianship was a tenure ender. Like, she, she wouldn't get tenure if this is what she was studying. Um, so I think for whatever reason, mm. it's been seen as kind of a intellectually uninteresting field of law. And I think as people realize how easily distorted these laws are, maybe there will be more reason to be studying them. Rachel, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Rachel Aviv is a staff writer for The New Yorker. Her recent piece is titled, How the Elderly Lose Their Rights. We reached out to both April Parks and Jared Schaefer, but we did not hear back. That's it for this week's show on the media. It's produced by Alana Casanova-Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, Michael Lowinger, and Leah Fetter. We had more help from Monique Laborde, and our show was edited this week by executive producer Katya Rogers. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Sam Baer and Terrence Bernardo. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. Brooke Gladstone will be back next week. I'm Bob Garfield. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.